And good morning again. I want to uh, introduce you to a word. It might not be familiar. Does anybody here know what a triptych is? Not a cryptic, a triptych. Anyone? Nobody? So there's a new word for the day. Isn't that exciting? Uh, It's a work of art that is divided into three sections, three different panels. And there's one here in the windows. That's called a triptych. Uh, One picture that is displayed in three parts. Now, you might be technical and throw in the circles. Just ignore them for the moment. But you can see... uh, Well, there should be one on the screen, and if the screen was down, uh, you'd be able to see it. And on the screen is the Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, And this picture comes from the 15th century, century, and it's a painting by Hieronymus Bosch, and it hangs in a gallery in Madrid. Now you can see it. Now, if the left panel is supposed to be the Garden of Eden, the panel on your left, the panel on the far right is going to be... Hell! Thank you, Anne Mason. That was very fast. Well done. And if this is a a picture of that which starts with the Garden of Eden and moves to a picture of black hell, what is in between? Now, it's shocking, I know. You might be thinking, what, has, what is going on with Adam? Is he feeling all right? He's getting this kind of culture on. I'm not sick. I am okay. But I want to show you this picture so that we can engage our imaginations as we come to Leviticus. See, when we come to chapters 8, 9 and 10, let's lose the picture, Tinica. They're so distracted. In your Bibles, look at your Bibles now. As you look at chapters 8, 9 and 10, they hang together like a triptych, like three panels, three works of art that are all on about the same thing. But before we delve into chapters 8, 9 and 10, we need to remember where we're up to in the book of Leviticus. Remember, Israel are God's redeemed people, rescued from Egypt and slavery. And who is the main man? The main man is Moses, beautiful. And where are they? They're at Sinai. Now they left Egypt. Now they're on the foot of Mount Sinai. And at Sinai, you remember, God invited them into a covenant relationship. Remember the Ten Commandments? And and did Israel keep the covenant? No sooner did they get it, what happened? They went, Moses goes down the mountain and it's... Golden calf time. Terrible time. Israel's sin has damaged the relationship, but such is God's kindness. The book of Exodus still ended with a blueprint for a tabernacle, a Garden of Eden, if you like. God's place among his people. Now Leviticus, however, isn't so much about what it what uh, isn't so much about what the sanctuary the tabernacle looks like. When we come to Leviticus, it's more like the operating manual, how it works. And we had a taste of that in the first seven chapters last week. We saw sacrifice after sacrifice, not only sacrifices for sin, 
but sacrifices of fellowship and sacrifices of thanksgiving. And we see God in his grace provides a way for his people to live in his presence. It's beautiful. But what else is needed if you're doing all these sacrifices? Well, you need a priest, don't you? We need mediators. And so it follows then that when we come to chapter 8, our first panel this morning, that's going to be about priests. And who on earth is going to priest the priests? It's going to be Moses, of course. He's going to get his priestliness. He's going to get his priestliness on in chapter 8. And so he will oversee sacrifices. You can see Moses in verse 15. He's dealing with blood. He's doing it again in verse 30. He's burning fat portions. He even gets the priestly portion, the best bit of the breast, verse 29. And Aaron and his boys, what are they doing? They're in the shoes of the worshipper, aren't they? They're laying their hands on the animals. They're cutting them with a knife. You remember that from last week. That's what the worshipper does, verse 14 and verse 22. And once they've done all those things, then they get ordained, verse 22. And how does chapter 8 end? Can you see it? It ends with a seven-day long feast in the sanctuary. It's a high point. The, The boys aren't ever allowed to leave. Verse 31, Moses tells Aaron and his sons, go and eat in the sanctuary Verse 33, you've got to stay there seven days, party time. And here, well, they're eating at God's dinner table, if you like, in a sanctuary. And this is the Israelite dream, to eat at God's dinner table. But here it's in the sanctuary. Notice also verse 35, do what the Lord requires so that you will not die. Uh, And doing what the Lord requires is threaded all throughout chapter 8. If we had read the whole chapter, we would have heard that phrase repeated nine times. Just as the Lord commanded. Verse 4, 5, 9, 13, 17, 21, 29, 34, 36. Just as the Lord commanded. Do you think they're making a point? So what do we learn from chapter 8? We learn again that God is holy, that God in his grace has provided an avenue of relationship. And it happens through sacrifice and through priests. But I want to show you that the high point is is the dinner table, God's dinner table, where they fellowship at his table for about seven days. And so like Aaron... What else do we know? We know like Aaron, all Christians, including leaders, including God, the leader of God's people, they still need to come to God for forgiveness. This is what we see in chapter 8. But unlike Aaron and his sons, we don't need to offer an animal sacrifice, do we? No, because we believe that Jesus paid it all. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. We believe the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And for that we rejoice. 
Now, chapter 9 is our next panel. But in chapter 9, it's the same, but it's different. Because in chapter 9, the roles have changed. So if in chapter 8, the priest was Moses, who is the priest now in chapter 9? Aaron, beautiful. We see that in verse 1. And the worshippers then are, verse 3, the Israelites. So much else is the same, but note that difference. But notice also that in chapter 9, things have escalated. How? Well, look at verse 6. Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do. But something is added. See, in verse 6, so that, here's a purpose, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Can you imagine being an Israelite and hearing Moses say that? Or Aaron even, and you'd be like, are you sure? What's going to happen? What? The glory of the Lord's going to appear? Are you, are you sure? This is a massive moment. This is a massive, massive promise. And so like chapter 8, Aaron and Israel, they're now doing the sacrifices. And just as chapter 8 ended with eating in the sanctuary at God's dinner table... How does chapter 9 end? Well, this is going to be something. Look at verse 23 of chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. What a moment. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of the meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Can you imagine that? That is just simply awesome. As the reader, we should be uh, excited about what we read here. We should see this as an extraordinary high point for Israel. Because here is God and man in fellowship. Here, everything, there's a sense that everything is good... This is simply momentous. If you're looking for a high point in the Old Testament, this, again, is, this must be one of them. That God would turn up. This is epic. Now, uh, do you know the joy and relief of uh, seeing something built or installed? I reckon there'd be a fair number of people here that would. And uh, you've... Be meticulous in your attention to fixing this thing or restoring it or making it. And you see the designs, you see the ideas, and it comes all together and then it works. And it works. Maybe it's a cake you've baked and you follow the recipe meticulously and you plunge the fork in, your taste buds sing, hallelujah. 
Maybe it's something else. Maybe it was a bookcase from Ikea. I don't know. Maybe it was a restored car or tractor, something fancy like that. And you turn the key and you kick the engine over and you're going, hooray, we didn't blow up. It starts. Here, they did as the Lord commanded and the glory of the Lord has appeared. It's amazing. And see their reactions. Verse 24, all the people saw it. They shouted for joy and they fell face down. I'd like to see a video of our youth group teenagers doing that. Shouting for joy and then falling face down. That would be something. But it gets you wondering that as God appears as a fire, how are we to, how are we to respond to that today as new covenant people? We heard Don read out for us from Hebrews chapter 12. And it finished by saying that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful, worship God, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But how do we respond to that? Well, it's interesting because chapter 13 of Hebrews outlines that for you. If you have it open there, you can see what it what it suggests. Here is the response. So verse 1 of Hebrews 13 says, you've got to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. You need to show hospitality. Verse 3, you've got to remember those who are in prison. Uh, you to verse 4, keep the marriage bed pure. You to keep your lives free of a love of money. Verse 5, remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 5. Verse 6, you acknowledge that God is your helper. You remember your leaders, verse 7, who spoke the word of God to you. Or verse 15, through Jesus, you're to continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Keep singing. Mike, we're going to keep singing. Uh, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Verse 17, we're to have confidence in our leaders. Or verse 18, we're to pray, and then we're to pray, and then we're to pray. And why do we need to do these things? It's because our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He is powerful. He is present. And our lives are to be filled with awe and reverence for Him. Now, again, imagine this is captured as a work of art. And the first two panels are similar. We've kind of seen that this morning. But the fire of God in the middle panel is really going to be something in that picture. But the question then must be, well, what is the third panel going to look like as this picture unfolds? Because it's all happy days, remember. Everything in this narrative up to this point leads us to believe that God's priests are going to obey the law promptly and exactly without deviation, just as the Lord commanded. It's all following this same pattern that God says, God says, God says, and then they do, they do, they do. So let's look at the third panel. Read chapter 10, verse 1. 
Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So the fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people I will be honoured. And Aaron remained silent. The occasion of God's fire that brought shouts and rejoicing in chapter 9, it now brings silence. What? What an anticlimax this is. The holiness of God appeared and brought rejoicing and celebration and thanksgiving. The holiness of God produced a pattern of living in God's people that was thoroughly good. That is good, but the holiness of God also brought silence. The holiness of God also brought judgment. What is supposed to be feasting and celebrating and praise is now stained with sin and death and silence. Nadab and Abihu, they just get it so wrong at this point. See, just as surely have the owners of the car kicked over the engine and the people cheered, we're away, everything is good. Nadab and Abihu, well, they enter the picture and they offer an authorised fire, a, a strange fire. The coals are supposed to come from the altar. And maybe they've, got, they've lit up the censers from somewhere else. Offering strange fire is the same as offering strange incense, which is expressly forbidden in Exodus 30 verse 9. And offering incense was a special one priest at a time job. And so some commentators have read this and they go, well, clearly they got too excited. Clearly they've got carried away with their position. They've got ahead of themselves and thrown themselves forward and they've acted with ambition. They've acted rashly and impetuously. Other commentators are absolutely certain they were probably half cut. Drunk. But you know the text, it just says they offered unauthorised fire. They've taken a liberty that isn't theirs. They've pushed the boundaries and tested the limits. Because, you know, let's just fudge it a little. No one will notice. Who really cares anyway? Whatever, right? Their job as priests was to be part of Israel's uh, solution to sin. Their job wasn't to be part of the problem. Their job was to represent people before God as mediators, as, 
examples of holy living. Their job was to foster in people reverence and awe for this holy God. They were responsible for the sanctity, the holiness of the people. And Leviticus is going to go on to show how this pursuit of holiness extends to every facet of life. Every part of life. This will come next week. Where we see that the Israelite is to think about that which is clean or unclean. Or profane or polluted or cleansed and sanctified. And they're encouraged to embrace that holiness that is theirs now. And to live in light of it now. To move away from the stuff of death. And to move forward to the stuff of eternal life. Holiness. And the priests are central to that task. And so the fire, it's impure. It's unholy. It's unauthorised. It's offensive to God. And terrible consequences follow. And doesn't this serve as as a warning to those who lead God's people? For the preacher. For the Bible study leaders. Youth group leaders. Parish counsellors, godly leadership is a core value of this church family. It's our core value number five. James chapter three, verse one says, not many of us should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And time and time again, Israelites hold their actions and decisions They're the difference between life and death. But here it's the priests who learn the lesson all too literally. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, took their senses, put fire in them, added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Book of Romans and the book of Genesis teaches that the wages of sin is death and these guys collected their wages on the very day they did their work. Did they presume on God's grace? Did they presume on their status as priests? They weren't the first and they weren't the last. Did they think they have power on tap now? Did they think somehow that God had been tamed and he was now under control? That God is nice and predictable and safe? Did they have God in a box? Did they think God was indifferent about disobedience? Did they presume that they could now decide what carried serious consequences and what didn't? Did they think like Adam and Eve? Did they think that somehow they simply knew better? And doesn't God in his actions turn that thinking upside down? Now you might ask, Adam, does this mean that I live in fear of being struck by a bolt of lightning? And I want to say no. No, but take the lesson of being presumptuous with God. 
Because flippancy doesn't fit. We do not set the terms. God sets the terms and he said, I will show myself as holy. And so he did. I'll tell you one thing's for sure. It has us thanking God that we have a different high priest. We have one who mediates for us. We who have one who is the son of God. We're told in Hebrews 4 that he's not unable to sympathise with our weakness. He knows what this is like. He was tempted in every way, it was without sin. And it means that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, where we receive mercy and grace all on account of Jesus. But here's our last question this morning. If our life is betrayed, if your life is like a three-panel painting, And the second one, God has come to you in Christ Jesus. And the fire, that fire is the fire of his Holy Spirit that has come to you. What's the third panel going to look like? Where where are we headed? Uh, If Jesus uh, is our King and Saviour, the answer cannot be hell, of course. Isn't it true that we're headed towards a great and heavenly dinner table? Isn't it true that we're headed towards the eternal sanctuary of heaven, where our cup will overflow and never run out? A place where there is no more weeping and crying and mourning and death. And isn't it true that we're like Israel on our way to the promised land, but we are headed for the heavenly tabernacle? And Jesus, our high priest, will welcome us. And God is saying then and today, that which is our future is to be embraced today. That which is his pure radiance and perfection and glory and holiness in Jesus, we're to embrace that today. And doesn't that make you run to Jesus? as our high priest and mediator. And doesn't it have us pray, Dear God, by your Holy Spirit, please make us and change us. Help us to walk in the steps of Jesus and to follow after him, to flee from sin and temptation and to pursue holiness, to put on Christ such that his nature His character might be revealed in us. For to grow in holiness is to grow in Christ. And uh, we pray this for God's glory alone. Amen.